I'm Damian Bassage, and this is California Frontier, the show about the fascinating history of California and the West. I'm happy to present today the second part of my conversation with Marie-Christine Duggan. Now, if you recall, in the first part of the conversation, we discussed the importance of the trade routes between New Spain and Manila and how that Manila connection has been crucial for California's history over the last 500 years. Now, if you listen to the first one, you'll remember that our conversation emphasized the importance of understanding the Pacific trade routes, how they influenced California's history for 500 years, and also the significance of the Seven Years' War, the British occupation of Manila, all these really fascinating things that um, highlight how important the California-Manila connection was for our early history. So in part two, we delve into some really fascinating things. We go deeper. We talk about the importance of the naval base at San Blas, for New Spain and for trade and for contraband and Mexico City's merchants that really got involved in that. And then we're going to really start to touch on a fascinating figure who is Juan Francisco de Bodega y Cuadra, whose name um, is on Bodega Bay in Northern California, how he explored the northern coast of... um, the Pacific, Alta California, and North, and then some of the whole regional dynamics and individual motivations in the Spanish Empire. I think you're going to really like it. And since it's a long interview, we will also follow it later with part three. I wanted to go back a minute to what you said about San Blas. You know, Hmm. what is San Blas? So San Blas was a naval base. New Spain's leading people were furious that Spain built a navy base at San Blas. And the wealthiest people in the Spanish Empire were not in Spain. They were in Mexico City. Mexico City is halfway between Spain and Asia. And Mexico, I mean, New Spain, was known as the source silver. 95% of what New Spain exported was silver. And The men who financed the silver mines were a small group of people, I don't know how many, maybe like 50, 100, who lived in a one-square-mile place called Mexico City, which had about 80,000 people. And they were the one percenters of their day. You know, the Bill Gates. um, Who's the guy who owns Amazon? Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos, right. I was thinking about that when when we talked um, earlier about what topic we were going to discuss. I was thinking, yeah, these are the, say, the Jeff Bezos's of that time period. And that is exactly right. And, you know, Jeff Bezos has this monopoly with Amazon. If you have a small business and you want to reach people, you pretty much have to advertise your stuff on Amazon. And he takes a big cut and it drives the small business people sometimes nuts. So in the same way, The Mexico City merchants had a lock on distributing imports all over New Spain. And imports came from Spain through Veracruz, and they came from Manila into Acapulco. 
And it was really 20 to 1. It was like mostly Spanish imports because that's what Spain wanted. Spain did not want cheap, high-quality Asian goods to swamp New Spain's market. Sounds familiar. Yes. (laughs) The the Asians have been really good at making beautiful stuff for a long time. (laughs) The markup, though, on the Asian products was astronomical. You know, the, the, the bulk of the imports were from Spain, but the bulk of the profits might have been made on the tiny amount from Asia. And all of it had to go to Mexico City first. And they didn't really have roads. They had mule trains. So you would unload stuff in Acapulco and unload stuff in Veracruz. I'm sure a little was sold at those two regions. But most of it was taken inland to big warehouses in Mexico City. And then the Mexico City merchants would distribute it out. Now, that meant that they got a cut. They got a cut on all the silver leaving. And they got a cut on every single import coming in. And they were very, very wealthy. You know, in the same way that if a bookstore sells books on Amazon, Jeff Bezos takes a cut. And it probably does make the customer pay a little bit more. But we can't really tell. And we got used to it. Um, Right. And there's other conveniences. And anyway, this was New Spain's system. And everybody was kind of used to it. However, Sinaloa, Sonora, Southern Arizona, California, and Baja California, you know, those are tough places to supply all the way from Mexico City with things that you bring by mule. I mean, statues, cannons, you know, it was, it was people in Sonora and Sinaloa were cheating mm-hmm. and they were doing the obvious. The, they were breaking the rules because the rules were kind of irrational for them. And Everybody knew that some silver was falling out into the Gulf of California and getting exported without paying taxes. And in return, these people were sometimes buying British goods from Panama because Jamaica is right next to Panama and Jamaica was British. And sometimes, you know, bales were falling off the Manila Galleon and they were getting Asian cloth. People, a lot of what people bought in those days was cloth. And, um, they weren't paying taxes on that. And, and so when the Spanish crown established San Blas, it was three miles from Matanchel. Um, I mean, you could walk to Matanchel from San Blas. It's so close. And Matanchel was known as a notorious contraband trade port. And so the Mexico City merchants were hopping mad that the crown would make an official port at San Blas because it was like giving the crown's approval to a bunch of contraband traders. So they basically said, well, if we can't beat them, we'll sort of co-opt them into our, under our umbrella. Well, actually, it was more like the Spanish crown said, we want to cut the, the Mexico City merchants down to size. They're too powerful and they're too wealthy. They're more powerful than anybody in Madrid at this point. Mm-hmm. And the Spaniards really wanted the king to be more powerful. They were regalists. So in 1760s. So they said, we have to cut these Mexico City merchants down to size. And we'll do it by, um, by breaking off this area and giving it its own port. So San Blas was about to become the port for the greater West, which was going to be Sinaloa, Sonora, Southern Arizona, California and Baja California. And then ships could arrive at San Blas and San Blas could actually take other ships up to Mazatlan and Sonora and Cabo San Lucas and Monterey and San Diego. And 
that would be a cheaper way to supply the region. And it would destroy the Mexico City merchants, but it would leave them a smaller market area, right? They would then have southern New Spain and central New Spain, Mexico City, but they wouldn't, they would get the Caribbean side, but they would have lost a piece. You know, it's as if we said, well, Amazon can be the online seller for half of the United States, but the other half will have this other online seller. So you keep it, but you reduce its power. Exactly. Now, I don't want to say that San Blas opened up in 1768 announcing that this is what it was going to do. No, it didn't do that. It said, we're just making a Navy port here. Calm down. You know, don't get all in a huffy about this. It's not a threat. But the people who established that port were thinking from the get-go that it would be a threat mm-hmm. to Acapulco's monopoly. They, they were people that did not believe in monopoly. You know, this was the time of Adam Smith. Adam Smith wrote that the British East India Company should not have monopoly rights to import spices to England. And the same ideas were current in Spain, that you did not want to give one actor so much privilege that they became too powerful. And they were thinking of cutting Mexico City's mercantile guild down the side. But they didn't say that. They, did, they, they mm-hmm. said, oh, don't get in a huff. But gradually, over the next 20 years, um, they would give San Blas more and more rights. And in 1796, I think, or 1795, it officially becomes a an international port. I see. You know, it's, I was thinking as, as you were talking about this, that, that the, the accepted wisdom or the, this, this narrative we tend to hear is, is exactly that there was no trade that the Spanish effectively, they kept, they kept a lock on trade, uh, on the West coast. Right. And then after say 1810, and especially after 1821, then, then things really opened up, but really there was, there was all sorts of illicit trade going on. And this is sort of a way to channel that or make sure that it's, there's an official, um, oversight of the trade. Am I correct when I say that? Yes. Yes, you are. I think in 1765, Jose de Galvez was sent by the King of Spain to get more cash out of New Spain. You know, in the same way that England put the Stamp Act into place in 1765 was trying to get more cash out of its New England colonies. Because um, Spain and Britain were at war and it was expensive. And the, the New England people didn't like paying a higher tax and people in New Spain didn't like paying a higher tax either. So Galvez had heard there was contraband silver leaving from the Gulf of California and goods from Panama and Asia coming in. And so I do think that part of the purpose of establishing that port was to flush it all out into the open, and then Spain could collect the 20% tax on the silver and the sales tax on the income, the duties on the incoming goods. So I think, I think that was smart. But Jose de Galvez was also a brutal man, and he killed a lot of people and wrecked a lot of things. So I don't know that Mm. Spain actually did get more money. Um, But the local merchants, the regional merchants of the area, um, and behind San Blas is a place called Tepic, they um, 
they kind of allied themselves with Galvez and say, this is our big break where we can get some legitimacy. So Galvez leaves Spain in 1770, leaves New Spain in 1771. He goes back to Spain and he becomes very powerful in Spain. But I think that the regional merchants of Tepic, Guaymas, and, and really Guadalajara, Guadalajara is the second largest city in Mexico. Doesn't seem that close to San Blas, but it's a lot closer than Mexico City. And it was the big mercantile center that used San Blas increasingly as its commercial port. And so those people um, get engaged. And, and that's where I did find the commercial actors. So the conventional wisdom right now is that there were no Hispanic actors in the fur trade. Um, Adele Ogden says that, except for Vicente Asadre, and Gibson says that, and Warren Cook says it. He wrote a beautiful book that, you know, I've read all of these people's books several times, and I think they're brilliant scholars, but I just think that that's, that's strange that we have swallowed that, that there were no Hispanic commercial actors in the fur trade, and in fact, there were. And they operated through the San Blas Navy. San Blas, so there's always two, two dimensions to it. So the San Blas Navy was a Navy center, and it did have a government supply line to California, to Baja California, to Waimas, and to Mazatlan. But in addition, it was a mercantile um, center. And on the ships that went up to California delivering supplies, there was also cargo by individual merchants in Tepic. And in California, if people caught otter hides, they could sell the hides to those ships. So they would have a larger budget than the official one. The official budget had been spent on official supplies. But if you gave the San Blas Navy personnel the hide to take to merchants in Tepic, then you had a little extra buying power for buying these extra goods that the merchants of Tepic had sent up. Did that, did that money, or yeah, the money made from the hides, did that stay with the the ship's personnel, or did did it wind up back in government hands, or was it taxed, or how, how did that work? Say, I am, I'm a ship's captain and my crew, and we're we're taking on otter hides in in Alta California to, to resell back, um, in, in Tepic or, or San Blas, where was that money going? Who was, who was holding on to it? Well, you know, I think a lot of people have assumed that we don't know about this because it was contraband. It was against the rules, but actually a lot of times it was legit. Hmm. Um, it's just that your smart ship captain did not announce to the world that he had just gotten 300 otter hides and was making a fortune. Because mm -hmm. if you do that, you know, the government might say, well, you have to pay tax on that. Um, you might get competitors coming in. And maybe somebody would say, oh, well, you're not allowed to do that. That's your, you're using the Navy ship for personal business. And I think one of the reasons maybe scholars haven't seen this before is that for a long time in the United States, if you had a government job, 
you had great pay, you had great benefits, and you weren't supposed to earn any income on the side. But that really isn't true now. Government employees, whether you're at the post office or at your state college or in the military, you know, the pay is constantly kind of not really rising up with inflation. And a lot of people are sort of expected to earn a little extra. People may have an Airbnb, you know, or they may mm -hmm. work in the summers and or they may like teach one course online in addition to their day job in person. And nobody thinks there's anything wrong with that now. In fact, we think that that would be a pretty smart thing to do to try to create stability for yourself in a time of uncertain budgets. And that's kind of the way the San Blas Navy was. Their budget was not very secure. In 1772, the viceroy says, well, I'm going to cut the budget to zero, which he didn't. But it was scary. And the pay yeah. wasn't very good. And it was a very dangerous life. You know, people die on these voyages routinely. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. So the people made extra. Um, and we call it contraband because it was against the rules, contrabando. But, you know, this was just your basic groceries. Okay, maybe some of Jose Cuervo's tequila from time to time. But tequila <laughs> is right behind, um, it's right behind the San Blas port in Tepic. But a lot of times it was going to be sugar, uh, dried shrimp, rice, cloth, um, wax. It wasn't, it was just basic stuff. Right. So what about this, this person, Bodegui Cuadra, that we were going to talk about and the name that sounds familiar to me growing up in Northern California, because we used to visit Bodega Bay. So I imagine he had something to do with the name of that place. Yes. Juan Francisco de la Bodega y Cuadra is such a fascinating guy. He, um, he started working at San Blas when he was about 30 years old in 1775. And he had been trained in, in, um, in a new Navy school for pilots in Spain. So he... He didn't just have hands-on experience. He had the technical know-how to make maps and go into unknown territory. And the San Blas Navy didn't just go to California. In 1774, the first trip actually went all the way up to around 54 degrees 40, 5440, which is in British Columbia now. Um, Then Bodega y Cuadra was on the second journey in 1775. And they had a new ship built in San Blas called the Sonora. And he was manning this ship with Antonio Morel. And Bodega and Morel are kind of buddies. And I don't think Morel had the same technical training. He was from Spain too, but he was more like he had learned hands-on. And... Their ship is so bad that you cannot be on this ship without getting wet. It's just constantly inundated. And they're going with Bruno Hezeta, who's the commander of a larger ship. And Hezeta, at a certain point, attaches a cable to the Sonora and pulls it along to Monterey. So that's how inadequate the Sonora was. Oh. And when they get to Monterey, Hezeta says, okay, guys, I'm sure you want to stay here in Monterey while the rest of us go up into the freezing waters of the far north. Well, Bodega and Morel are like, no way, man, we're going. 
They say, look, if we were going to be killed, we'd be dead by now. We survived that awful journey, and we're definitely going to go for the glory and the excitement of unknown territory. So they do go. And, you know, again, collecting otter hides is just routine on this trip. And I don't think it's the only reason they went, but they definitely traded for otter hides at 41 degrees, which is Trinity, California, at 47 degrees among the Kenult, and again at 50 degrees. Now, Nootka Sound would be the major place to get the best otter hides for the next 20 years. And they went to Nootka Sound. Are they? Well, Nootka Sound is at 49 degrees, and Hazeta says at 50 degrees, we're going to turn around. Well, to me, that is suspicious that he did think the point was to get the otter hides at Nootka Sound, but he doesn't say that. It just seems odd that he chose to turn around at 50 degrees. The government had asked them to go a little further. Um, well, everybody knew that the unofficial invisible border with Russia was 5440. It, no Spanish ship had ever crossed it as far as we know. So, though technically Spain claimed that they owned the territory, the, the Russians have been there for many years. Anyway, Morel and Bodega are like, no way are we not going to cross the border into the Russian territory because that's exciting. Hmm. So in their tiny little ship, they kind of ditch their boss. They say, oh, it was foggy. We couldn't find you. But nobody believed that. <laughs> and so Hazeta turns around and Bodega and Morel keep going past 55 degrees into they go up to about 58 degrees um, in what is clearly Russia. And again, they trade along the way. Um, Sorry, can, can I stop you right there? Who are they trading with? Who's supplying them with otter pelts along the way up the coast? Um, so I imagine Monterey, there's an outpost. There's, you know, that's a, that's a settled area. But as they get further and further north, who's, who's offering them? Is it, yeah, who's offering them the pelts? So I want to be clear. I don't think they were getting pelts in California at this time. I think they started getting pelts in like the early 1780s in California. What they were getting from Monterey was abalone shells, hmm. which are so beautiful. Yeah. And word was out that in Nootka, they would give a beautiful otter hide for two abalone shells. So the trick was oh. to... To go to Monterey first and maybe use glass beads to trade for abalone. Um, so with the natives, were, with the, with with the, the natives. And there were lots of unconverted people. I mean, there were missions in California, but mm -hmm. um, 1775, you know, San Francisco hadn't even been founded yet. And there were many people right. who were not yet converted. And then head up. You have to make this giant fee to get from San Blas to California. You have to go out into the open Pacific and come back. And then you have to make another giant fee to go back up to Nootka. And because so, the currents are so, this, the southerly currents, right, are so hard to fight along the coast. Exactly. That it's very hard to sail against that current. So they traded with the, um, the Yurok at Trinity mm. Harbor at 41 degrees and with the Kinult at 47 degrees, which is near Olympia, Washington. And then at 50 degrees, they were just past Nootka Sound. The people were called Nootka at that time. 
Now we say new chow new. And they do say that they traded. I mean, I didn't make that up. I think it's clear that their focus on saving their lives and getting glory is first. And I'm not trying to argue against that. I do wonder if Hazetta turning around at 50 degrees had something to do with getting the hides. But I don't think that Morel and Bodega were primarily motivated to make money. I think they were primarily motivated to prove themselves. You know, they were the kind of young men who, if they had motorcycles today, would go too fast on Route 1. This marks the end of part two of my interview with Marie Christine Duggan. Stay tuned for part three on the next episode of the California Frontier Show. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the California Frontier Podcast. If you liked what you heard, consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the California Frontier Project website at www.californiafrontier.net. If you have a question, comment, or a suggestion, make sure and drop me a line at damian at californiafrontier.net.